Hello, this is William Fang, and this is Christiania Internet Radio. Today is Friday, August 26th, 2016. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Before we begin this evening, I have some spam. I made um, seven new MP3 CDs available this week, and now have a total of 35 titles available. There are more coming soon, including six more years worth of Clifton Emmerheiser's Watchman's Teaching Letters, and we even plan to publish some of our older podcasts on CD, the Matthew series, the Mark series. That'll happen soon. Hopefully just about everything we have done since early 2011. I'll hold off on Christ Strike until um, next year when I have an opportunity to redo the series on the Revelation. Except for a few single podcast audio CDs, all of our CDs, if you put them into a computer, contain an index page that can be loaded into a web browser, which has links to all of the material on the CD. Not only the podcasts for each title found, but also all copies of our notes, and sometimes other materials relevant to the presentations, videos, present videos, PDF files of books we we cited. While all of our podcasts and writings are freely available at Christagenia, and will remain so, we think these CDs can be a valuable witnessing tool. It is often complicated to direct someone to a website with instructions on how to get to a certain page or podcast, but it's easy to hand them a CD, and the cost is only about $5 plus shipping. Of course, the shipping for one CD is expensive, but for multiple CDs, the shipping costs drop drastically. Of course, all of our listeners are welcome to download our material and make their own CDs for safekeeping or to give out to friends and acquaintances. But the CDs we have published probably look a lot prettier than Magic Marker labels and are priced cheaply enough, we hope, to be worth your saving the time making your own. I just thought I would get that in. We, um... We hope to have at least 15 more CDs in, in the next couple of months. That's all I can promise. It took me two days to put together seven CDs and the covers and, and or the label art and, and the documents and the podcast and make all the images and upload them to the company that publishes them it, and, and then make all the links at Christagenia. So it's, it's a... Um, it's a little bit of work just involved in making CDs available. It's nothing's easy. It only looks it. Tonight we are going to present something that I'm calling The Importance of the Song of Solomon to Biblical Anthropology. I almost titled this program The Bible, It's a White Thing. I chose the more academic title for the purpose of attracting people that aren't familiar with Christian identity on search engines. Tonight's program is going to serve two purposes. Firstly, it is a defense of the song of Solomon, which is also sometimes called Canticles, or the Song of Songs. 
It's a defense of the song as a biblical book which belongs in our scripture. Secondly, it will serve as an exposition of a paper recently published by Clifton Emmerheiser, which was titled, It is Biblical to be Caucasian, Song, meaning the Song of Solomon, chapters 4 to 7. Clifton's paper was published at his website in four installments two years ago. The word anthropology is defined in Collins's English Dictionary as the study of humans, their origins, physical characteristics, institutions, religious beliefs, social relationships, etc. And no, the definition isn't ideal. We only wanted to present it. And here we shall concern ourselves with only one aspect of the term. The physical characteristics of certain people in the Bible. Once we determine these characteristics, there is little doubt we may determine the general race of the ancient Israelites of Scripture. No book of the Bible is more important in that respect than the Song of Solomon, and that will be the purpose of our program this evening. We continually hear denominational pastors claim that Jesus may have been a brown man, or people in the Middle East are brown, so Jesus must have been brown. Examples of a variety of claims whereby they fully exhibit their own anthropological ignorance. The Song of Solomon is one place where it is very obvious that the ancient Israelites were white. So Jesus, being a full-blooded descendant of David and Solomon, must have also been white. Now, from a Christian identity point of view, before we begin, we must take Bertrand Compare and Wesley Swift to task on this issue. Compare never wrote on the Song of Solomon, or as it is also called, Canticles, or the Canticle of Canticles, and, and that word canticle comes from the Latin Vulgate, and that was probably because he did not think that it belonged in the scripture. And neither did Swift, but Swift mentioned it more often. Here is what Compare said at the end of his presentation on a book, which really does not belong in scripture, and that book is the so-called Book of Esther. Compare never wrote on a Song of Solomon by itself, but he added these three paragraphs, I'm sorry, four paragraphs, to the end of his talk on the book of Esther. And he said, There is one other book in the Bible that likewise, I, meaning Compare, don't believe belongs there either, but it is not harmful. At least it is not like the book of Esther. And that is the Song of Songs of Solomon. Now that is a very nice little Hebrew play in the Hebrew language of Hebrew poetry. You can compare it in a way to some of Shakespeare's plays, 
written in blank verse. As poetry, I have no objection to it. On the other hand, I don't see why mere poetry as such is entitled to be put in the Bible. And I must interject that it's unfortunate that Comparate did not see that. And he continues by making an analogy. You remember one of the noted English poets, Coleridge, wrote his poem Kublai Khan. Probably you studied it in school. In Xanadu did Kublai Khan a wondrous pleasure dome decree, where Alf the sacred river ran through caverns measureless to man down to a sunless sea. As a matter of fact, he dreamed that poem in his sleep, and he woke up with the memory so vivid he was able to write it down, and the last three or four verses of it began to become a bit ridiculous, as you would expect of a dream. But up to that point, it is thoroughly good poetry. But I still don't see why we should put that in our Bible. And I don't see why we should put the Song of Solomon in the Bible. It contains no message from God. And we would have had a surprise for Mr. Compare if only we had been able to see him. And he continues by saying, But I can understand how the Song of Solomon got into the Bible. You remember that during... All those centuries, and, and this gets kind of risque or bowdy, and Compare really didn't have to go here. You remember that during all those centuries, the churchmen who were deciding these things lived in their monasteries unmarried. That really wasn't true of the first few centuries of Christianity. They couldn't subscribe to Esquire or Playboy, but they did want something they could read that would cheer them up a bit when they considered the bitterness of their solitary lives. And I guess that would be perhaps an explanation of how they came to include the Song of Songs of Solomon. But it doesn't do any particular harm, and, and we would have to object that Esquire and Playboy both certainly do harm. We don't even want their equivalents. He continues and concludes by saying, If you take out those two books from the Bible, meaning Esther and the Song of Solomon, what you have left is basically soundly on inspiration in all the prophetic parts of it and an authentic history in all the prophetic parts of it. And that's probably a typo for an inspiration. All the rest of the Bible I stand back of 100%, but those two books don't belong there. Now, Bertrand Compare did a lot of excellent work in his assessments and explanations of other scriptures. But here, on the Song of Solomon, he has disappointed us greatly. If we could only have shown Compare the allegories in the song which cannot pertain to any woman, to any sitting queen, or to any wife of the king, perhaps we could have changed his mind. Perhaps we may have changed Wesley Swift's mind as well. Compare may have actually copied this error from Swift. In his May 1960 sermon, 1964 sermon on the fabulous Blue Tunic Army of Christ. Swift said, and I quote, The Song of Solomon and the Book of Esther are totally spurious, and the name of God isn't even in them once. And that is true of the Song of Solomon and of Esther, which is spurious.
He went on to describe the Song of Solomon as licentious and said that it stands for mongrelization. However, neither of those accusations are true. Actually, it is the blue tunic army of Christ that is totally spurious. And with that, we see that Wesley Swift also committed some grave errors. Even earlier, in his November 1962 Snake Nest Sermon, Swift had said that the Song of Solomon and the Book of Esther are fraudulent books and they should not be in your Bible. Of course, we agree with him concerning the Book of Esther, but we certainly cannot agree concerning the Song of Solomon, or the Song of the Songs of Solomon, the Song of Songs of Solomon. Swift made his worst assessment of the Song of Solomon in his April 29, 1964 Bible study question and answer session, where he said, as we have it recorded, recorded at our Wesley Swift archive, then the Song of Solomon is another phony book. It does not have the name of God in it even once, and deals with the love affairs, supposedly of Solomon, and three or four others of different races, Negroes, and everything else, and is actually a phony book. Now, all of this is not only a poor assessment, but actually an outright mischaracterization of the entire nature of the book. And for this, we would censure Swift quite strongly. The man was a fast and loose storyteller and was not the scholar that he appeared to be. In fact, this last assessment of Swift's is actually embarrassing. And tonight we will find out why. But not all of the early Christian identity teachers followed after this error by Compre and Swift. In volume number four, I'm sorry, in volume four, issue number three of William Gale's Christian Identity Magazine, which we also have archived at our Wesley Swift archive at Christagenia. Volume four, number three of William Gale's Christian Identity Magazine, dated for July 1969. There is an unattributed article titled Children of God versus Children of Satan. And there it says in part, and I quote, For instance, in the Douay version of 1950, it says in Canticles, referring to Jesus Christ, that he is white, ruddy, and chosen out of thousands. Then in Wisdom it says that he is of the race of Adam. So the race of Adam is white. So the author of that article, who may or may not have been William Gale himself, I imagine it probably was Gale, since the article is not attributed to anybody else, the author of that article certainly understood the importance of the Song of Solomon, both as an allegory of Christ and Israel, and to the study of biblical anthropology. The editor of Gale's magazine, even chose to reprint that same article three years later in volume seven, number two of the magazine, which happened to be dedicated to reprints. That entire issue was a reprint of things which had appeared in former magazines. So that article, which was basically 
in admiration and respect of the Song of Solomon, Canticles as it's called, that article was chosen purposely for reprint in a future issue, only three years later. The Song of Solomon is indeed about God, in the form of Solomon himself as a type for Yahshua Christ, and it also represents an inspired message from God. The allegories in the Song of Solomon reveal that Solomon is a type of Christ and that the wife of the king is the collective body of the children of Israel. Israel, the wife of God. The queen in the Song of Solomon represents the Israelites as a people and the Song of Songs merits its title its illustrious title, because it represents the greatest love story which has ever been told, that of Yahweh's love for Israel, his bride. I'm going to give one striking example of such an allegory here, where it can't possibly refer to a single woman. In the ancient world, Women were closely guarded. Perhaps of women, only a whore would be found roaming the streets at night, and she would not even be safe. But the woman of the king, the concubines, his wife especially, were even more closely guarded, and were kept under guard in the innermost quarters of the palaces. The inner chambers of the palaces were typically where the women's residences were kept. They certainly would not be allowed outside without an armed escort, and only under extraordinary circumstances would that happen at night. So in chapter 3 of the Song of Solomon, we read in the opening verses, by night on my bed I sought him, whom my soul loveth. This is the part of the woman speaking. I sought him, but I found him not. I will rise now and go about the city and the streets. And in the broad ways I will seek him whom my soul loveth. I sought him, but I found him not. The watchmen that go about the city found me. To whom I said, Have you seen him whom my soul loveth? Now, this situation, described here, would be impossible for a queen. But representing the wanderings of the children of Israel as a people, it becomes wholly plausible. All a queen would have to do is to ask her guard for the whereabouts of her husband, who is probably not himself out at night roaming about the city. And if the watchmen found a queen roaming around the city streets at night, they would most likely have arrested her and brought her to the king's guard, arrested her for her own safety. Then in the very next verse of that same chapter, we read the following. It was but a little, but a little time that I passed from them. But I found him whom my soul loveth. In other words, she asked the city watchman. This is the queen asking the watchman of the city where her husband is, and they don't know, so she just goes on her merry way. 
That doesn't describe a queen. It's an allegory. It was but a little while that I passed from them, but I found him whom my soul loveth. I beheld him, and would not let him go, until I had brought him into my mother's house, and into the chamber of her that conceived me. And of course the watchmen probably, in this allegory, they probably stand for the prophets. Now, nothing would explain how a queen wandering the streets of a city at night could find her husband and lover, who happens to be the king, doing the same thing, and how she would bring him to the bedroom of her mother's house after she found him. But once it is understood that the mother represents that the, the allegorical people of Israel, once it is understood that this represents the children of Israel and the anticipation of their Messiah, then we can understand that this entire poem is an allegory describing that very relationship. Even some of the commentaries of the denominational Christian sects understand this. So we cannot explain how Bertrand Compare or Wesley Swift may have missed it. Not at all. Solomon was indeed much wiser than either Compare, Swift, or Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Here we are going to present an overview of the anthropo anthropological significance of the Song of Solomon. In order to do so, we shall enlist the assistance of a recent series of four papers by Clifton Emmerheiser on the topic. These are titled, It is Biblical to be Caucasian, Song, Chapters 4 to 7, and there will be a link to them with this publication this evening. We are employing Clifton Studies for this purpose because he has already done a lot of the groundwork for us and also had some interesting and worthy assessments that we will repeat here. Of course, we cannot present all four of his papers in this one presentation, but we will present portions and also offer some of our own comments. But before we are going, but, but before we are going to start where Clifton started, we're going to start where Clifton had ended, and that is where he gave what he had called a word of caution on verse 6, chapter 1 of the Song of Solomon. And Clifton did this at the very end of his series of four papers. And he said, this verse reads in part, Look not upon me, because I am black. This verse is not speaking of being genetically black, but rather of having a suntan. For it continues, because the sun has looked upon me. And Clifton says, I make a special effort to point this out, as there are those who would like to wrench this verse, and actually only a small portion of the verse, completely out of context, to include non-whites in the kingdom of Yahweh. As a matter of fact, quite the opposite is true. Or to exclude them, and 
basically it's worse than that. Negroes continually cite this verse to prove that the Israelites of the Old Testament were black. And many Jews actually support them in that endeavor. Clifton then said that realistically, Proverbs chapter 7, verses 1 through 22, are the antithesis to the Song of Solomon. And what he meant was the antithesis to that passage in the Song of Solomon. And he quoted the proverb, because if it is accepted, as it should be, that Solomon is the author of the song, then Solomon should not be contradicting himself in the proverb, where he strongly admonishes against both race-mixing and harlotry. Clifton then quotes from various sources which explain the fornication in race-mixing, which was prevalent amongst the pagan cults of Solomon's own time. In order to put Solomon's admonishments in Proverbs into a historical context. Then Clifton explained how Jeremiah chapter 2 also contains allegorical admonishments against race mixing. One of those admonishments is found in verse 13 of the chapter, where it says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And in this regard, Clifton speaks of Proverbs chapter 5. And he says, What we have here is a situation where neither the terms sour grapes nor broken cisterns can be taken literally. This is why the Breton Septuagint translation reads Proverbs 5 verses 15 through 20, thusly, Drink waters out of thine own vessels, and out of thine own springing wells. Let not waters out of thy fountain be spilt by thee, and let thy waters go into thy streets. Let them be thine own only, and let no stranger partake with thee. Let thy fountain of water be truly thine own, and rejoice with the wife of thy youth. Let thy loving heart and thy graceful cult company with thee, and let her, the heart and the cult being allegories for the wife of his youth, and let her be considered thine own, and be with thee at all times. For ravished with her love thou shalt be greatly increased. Be not intimate with a strange woman, neither fold thyself in the arms of a woman not thine own. So if you drink waters out of your own cistern, you will be with your natural lawful wife and not found with a strange woman where you let your waters run into the streets of others, where you break your cisterns in the resulting offspring. And while Clifton ended his series with a long digression regarding the meaning of these, the term sour grapes, the point is that the author of Proverbs 
could not have meant to encourage race mixing when he wrote the Song of Songs, because he spoke consistently against race mixing in the allegories of the Proverbs. Yet even Wesley Swift was fooled into thinking so, when he said in part, as we have quoted above, that the Song of Solomon deals with the love affairs, supposedly of Solomon, and three or four others of different races, Negroes and everything else. So Swift evidently did not understand verse 6 of the first chapter of the Song of Solomon, because that's the only place where he could have imagined that it talked about Negroes. That verse of the song, Song chapter 1, verse 6, actually says in the King James Version, and where the speaker is evidently the main character, Solomon himself, Look not upon me, because I am black, because the sun has looked down on me, or looked upon me. My mother's children were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard have I not kept. As Brenton had translated the first two phrases of the verse, the Septuagint version reads, Look not upon me, because I am dark, because the sun has looked unfavorably upon me. And we will reserve comment on the rest of the verse, which is actually pretty profound, for a separate and Yahweh willing future commentary on the Song of Solomon entirely. The New American Standard Bible translates the Masoretic Hebrew to read, in the beginning of that verse, Do not stare at me, because I am swarthy, for the sun has burned me. And in any event, the speaker in that verse is black, or dark, or swarthy, only because the sun had burned, or tanned him. More importantly to note is the sense of shame expressed by the speaker because he is dark, black, or swarthy. He begs the woman not to look upon him. With that, we see that being black was considered negatively. Being black was considered badly, causing such a sense of shame that the man did not even want to be looked upon by women. So while in the previous statement, in verse 5, the speaker insists that I am black but comely, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, here he nevertheless asks that they look not upon me because I am black. And the sense of shame is expressed in that. It cannot really be proven with the information currently at hand. But there is a Hebrew word, balag, B-A-L-A-G, and the vowels, I must say, don't necessarily belong there. Balag, which Strong's defines at entry number 1082 of his lexicon, in part, in a negative sense, as to desist from grief or to invade with destruction. Look at our American cities and you'll see where I'm going. Then there is a related word, bala, 
which he defines at entry number 1086 in part, as to wear out, decay, or in a causative sense, to consume or spend. We suspect that these are the ultimate origins of the English words plague, pillage, plagiary, and the Latin words plaga and plagium, and the English word black. Throughout history, black was equated with plague and destruction, and that is also true in Scripture. If the authors of Scripture were black, the values reflected in Scripture would be quite different. Throughout the language, however, it is perfectly clear that the authors of Scripture were white. So we see the proclamation of Job in chapter 30, verse 30, that my skin is black upon me, and my bones are burned with heat. My harp also is turned to mourning, and my organ unto the voice of them that weep. The depiction of blackness was used to describe his shame and his humble condition, but not his natural skin color. Throughout the scriptures, to be black is a sign of something bad, or of the suffering of some evil. In Lamentations, chapter 4, verse 7, Jeremiah had written of the holy men of Jerusalem that her Nazarites were purer than snow, they were whiter than milk, they were more ruddy in ruby in body than rubies. Their polishing was of sapphire, and we will discuss that verse at length as Clifton discussed it later on this evening. Being whiter than milk cannot be disregarded as an allegory for ethical purity. As the line, they were more ruddy in body than rubies, is certainly an accompanying physical description. Then, with the pain and suffering they underwent in the siege of Jerusalem by the Chaldeans, the prophet writes that as a result, their visage is blacker than a coal, they are not known in the streets. Their skin cleaves to their bones. It is withered. It has become like a stick. So once again, to be black is shameful. It represents sickness. And it was seen negatively. One chapter later, in Lamentations chapter 5, it says of the people of Judah, our skin was black like an oven because of the terrible famine. Now, if they were naturally black, none of these metaphors would make any damned sense. None of these metaphors would apply. And therefore, the people of Judah must have been white, as white as milk and snow, and ruddy, which only describes authentically white and not merely light-skinned people. This is where Clifton began his series of essays, and making a synopsis of Clifton's papers, we will begin with some lengthy quotes from part one, where Clifton says we will start this essay by quoting Brenton's Septuagint at Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verses 9 through 12. What is thy kinsman more than another kinsman? O thou beautiful among women! And it's important to note that the king is recognizing that his wife is a kinsman 
or a kinswoman. What is thy kinsman more than another kinsman, that thou hast so changed us? My kinsman is white and ruddy, chosen out from myriads. His head is as very fine gold. His locks are flowing, black as a raven, and that's his hair. And note that in the Septuagint it's flowing. His eyes are as doves by the pools of waters washed with milk, sitting by the pools. And Clifton added some notes that pools of water must represent blue eyes. Now, we would concede that pools of water could be seen as gray or green, but they're most likely blue. And if they're gray or green, regardless, gray eyes, green eyes, blue eyes, all typically belong to white people. If these people were Negroes, it would say that his eyes were as pools of mud. Clifton quotes the King James in the way it renders the same passage. What is thy beloved kinsman more than another beloved or kinsman? Clifton is giving us the meaning of the word or an alternate meaning of the word. O thou fairest among women, what is thy beloved more than another beloved that thou dost so charge us? My beloved is white and ruddy, the chiefest among ten thousand. His head is as the most fine gold. His locks are bushy. Now, that's an unfortunate translation of the King James translators. The Septuagint has flowing and black as a raven. His eyes are as the eyes of doves by the rivers of waters, washed with milk and fitly sat. And Clifton tells us that the Hebrew word for ruddy here is Strong's number 122, Adam, meaning red, ruddy, and it's used of man, horses, heifers, garments, water, or lentils. And it comes from 119, which is a verb, which means, and it's the same word, Adam, or Adam, to show blood in the face, to flush or turn rosy. And here Clifton makes a digression related to the use of the terms ruddy and rosy. And he says, and we're only going to quote from part of this lengthy digression, Benjamin Franklin must have been familiar with this passage, for he made a similar statement in his observations concerning the increase of mankind, the people of countries, etc. And he quotes Benjamin Franklin as saying, which leads me to add one remark, this being Franklin, that the number of purely white people in the world is proportionably very small. And I've actually read this in Carl Van Doren's famous translation of Franklin's papers, published in the 1930s. All Africa is black or tawny, Asia chiefly tawny, America exclusive of the newcomers, wholly so, 
And in Europe, the Spaniards, Italians, French, Russians, and Swedes are generally of what we call a swarthy complexion, as are the Germans also, the Saxons only excepted, who with the English make the principal body of white people on the face of the earth. I could wish their numbers were increased. And while we are, as I may call it, scouring our planet by clearing America of woods, and so making this side of our globe reflect a brighter light to the eyes of inhabitants in Mars or Venus, why should we in the sight of superior beings darken its people? Why increase the sons of Africa by planting them in America, where we have so fair an opportunity by excluding all blacks and tawnies of increasing the lovely red and white? But perhaps I am partial to the complexion of my country, for such kind of partiality is natural to mankind. And of course it was. And we could make a few offhand remarks here about Benjamin Franklin believing in aliens, which he did, evidently, and believing that the Earth was a globe long before the government established NASA. But we'll leave it at that. I think that's funny. While Clifton had a longer discussion, and a somewhat different assessment of Franklin's words here, we shall only note that he had a politicized and very narrow view of what and who constituted the lovely white and red, which was not quite fair to many of his kindred Europeans. So we'll also leave that right there. And Clifton continues and says, When Franklin stated, in America, where we have so fair an opportunity, by excluding all blacks and tawnies of increasing the lovely white and red, it is evident he was familiar with the Song of Solomon, chapter 5. Here, by mentioning the lovely white and red, Franklin simply meant beautiful people with rosy cheeks, like the Song of Solomon in chapters 4 and 5 describes. It should be pointed out here that Benjamin Franklin was one of the leading framers of our United States Constitution, so this sheds light on their intent, and of course it does, if we observe the word posterity, as Clifton noted in its preamble. And then after a digression on the intentions of the American founders for the destiny of the nation, Clifton continues with the Song of Solomon, where we will pick up. Song chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, further describes the complexion of the Adamic Israelites at the time of Solomon. To thy two breasts, Solomon portrayed as speaking to his bride. Thy two breasts are like two young rows that are twins. Thy neck is as a tower of ivory. Thine eyes like the fish pools in Heshbon. And of course, Clifton notes that they were more than likely blue fish pools. The significance of two young rows, he says, is interesting. As Webster's Unified Encyclopedia and Dictionary gives the following definition in volume 11 under the subject of row. A small deer, native to Europe and Asia, the female of the red deer. And here again we are faced with the idea of a white blushing female. 
Next, as for thy neck is as a tower of ivory. It is alluding to the complexion of the neck as being similar to the color of her teeth. It should also be pointed out that the white Caucasian woman has a mark of beauty emanating from her neck. On the other hand, the male Caucasian does not have this mark of beauty because his Adam's apple interferes with its being revealed. This mark of beauty possessed by the Caucasian female is in conjunction with where the left and right collarbones intersect with the left and right sternocleidomastoideous muscles in the neck. It actually appears like two supporting bars holding up the head. The sternocleidomastoideous muscles attach just behind the ears, and each drops down to intersect with its corresponding collarbone. In moving the head back and forth, one of the two muscles will project outward while simultaneously increasing its vertical angle from about 11 to 0 degrees. When choosing what clothing to wear, the Caucasian lady should pick out something which reveals this mark of beauty. The neck and head really do appear as a tower of ivory, and Clifton is in evidently encouraging the plunging neckline in women's fashion, which is probably okay as long as they keep the young rose in their shirts. Clifton continues by saying, excerpts from Song of Solomon, chapter 4, read, Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. Thou hast two dove's eyes within thy locks. Thy lips are like a thread of scarlet, and thy speech comely. Thy neck is like the Tower of David. Thy two breasts are like two young rows that are twins, which feed among the lilies. Thou art all fair, my love. There is no spot in thee. Thou hast ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. How fair is thy love, my sister, my spouse. How much better is thy love than wine. Thy lips, O my spouse, drop as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under thy tongue. And, of course, the word sister, in reference to a spouse, is used much as Paul had used the same word, or the Greek version of it, in his epistles, where he said that a spouse should basically be one of one's own female kinsmen. A spouse should be a sister in that sense. Flesh of the flesh and bone of your bone. As for the word crimson, Clifton says, it is Strong's number 8144, Shawnee, crimson, properly the insect or its color, also stuff which was dyed with it. And again, he says, we are confronted with a shade of red. In addition, Strong's number 1818 is Hebrew for blood, and Strong states, compare Hebrew number 119. Now, Strong's makes the connection in the definition for blood, but he doesn't connect Adam with the word for blood, so he fails in that regard. And many more, many more people would probably recognize why Adam means ruddy if Strong had connected 1818 in his definition at 119.
and Clifton says, So blood is encapsulated in Adam's name, and Yahshua Christ came in Adam's flesh. So to race mix is to blaspheme Christ. And that's one way of explaining it, and there are many others. Here Clifton is trying to explain that the Hebrew word Adam, from which the proper name is derived, means ruddy, because it is derived from the Hebrew word dam, which means blood. Not even James Strong made the connection in his original lexicon at the entries, and I say entries, and I'll explain that, for the word Adam. There are many fools, posing to be scholars, most of them Jews, who claim that the word Adam refers to something dark red or even brown because there is a noun, Adama, which refers to certain soil. But Strong even said that Adama was derived from Adam and not the other way around, and that the reason Adama was used to describe soil was from its redness. Even today we identify certain clay soils as having value for their reddish hue, especially when used in the construction of ball fields. Red clay. Here is something I had written in the Christagenia Forum earlier this year. In language, so far as I have ever seen, the simple noun never gets its origin from the more complex noun. Rather, it is the simple noun which lends itself as a stem forming more complex words. The Jews, making the assertion that Adam comes from Adama, define, defy, defy all language logic. The word Adam has several uses, so James Strong separated them with distinct entries in his lexicon. And entry number 119 is Adam, the verb, and it's defined to be ruddy, flush, to show blood in the face. And entry number 120 is Adam, the noun, and it's defined to mean man. And entry number 121 is Adam, the proper name. And entry number 122 is Adam as an adjective, rosy or ruddy. And entry number 123 is Edom, and that's a proper name. And it's the same word as Adam, exactly. It's only spelled Edom in the King James and other English versions to help distinguish the two characters. And that's another story entirely. And entry number 124 is Odem, and it's a noun, and it means redness. But all of these words are the exact same original word. Once we discard the rabbinical vowel pointing, which was invented relatively recently, in the original Hebrew, there were no vowel points. And all of these words are spelled precisely with the same three Hebrew letters. Aleph, Daleph, Mem. And there is only one other, even more basic word, that all of these words must have come from, which also explains why they all basically mean red, 
but are also related to the ruddiness or rosy color of a man. And that is Strong's number 1818, Dom, which is a noun which means blood. Adam means ruddy or rosy because Dom means blood. Then, by extension, Adama refers to reddish-colored soil because Adam means ruddy or red, like blood. Not even Strong made this connection correctly, as he too was probably influenced by the rabbis. But when he got to 1818 in his lexicon, he realized it and asked to compare. But he still didn't reference the fact that the root of Adam is Dom. The Jews know this, but they are purposely lying to hide the true meaning of the word Adam. So Adam means ruddy because Dom means blood, and no Negro or Arab could ever be ruddy. A short time later, I added this thought. I also believe that our English word dam comes from the Hebrew word for blood, Dom, as it refers to judgment. Now we shall move on to part two of Clifton's series of papers where he begins with the same passage from Lamentations, Lamentations chapter 4, verse 7, which we have already discussed. And he quotes, Her, meaning Israelite, her Nazarites were purer than snow. They were whiter than milk. They were more ruddy in body than rubies. Their polishing was of sapphire. And Clifton asks a question, what is there about the purity of snow that we don't seem to understand? And he asks another question. What is there about a color whiter than milk that we don't seem to understand? And he continues with another question. What is there about the phrase more ruddy in body than rubies that we don't seem to understand? And what is there about the color of rubies that we don't seem to understand? And he asks his final question. Why does this biblical verse exactly describe white, Caucasian, Europeans, or Americans and their like kindred people around the world? And he quotes from Adam Clark's six-volume commentary, volume 4, page 410, where Clark comments on the above passage. Her Nazarites were purer than snow. Nazir does not always signify a person separated under a religious vow. It sometimes denotes what is chief or eminent to be separated and appointed to a position. It is applied to Joseph in Genesis 49.26. Blaney, another scholar whom Clark is quoting, therefore translates here in Lamentations 4.7 her nobles her nobles were purer than snow. They were whiter than milk. They were ruddier on the bone than rubies. Their veining, note that difference, their veining was as the sapphires rather than their polishing. And Clark says, in reference to Blaney, on which he remarks, in the first line, the whiteness of their skin is described, and in the second, their flesh, and as Gazar signifies, to divide and intersect, 
the Hebrew term that the King James Version translates as polishing, as the blue veins do on the surface of the body, these are without doubt intended. So Blaney translates the phrase as veining to describe the veins intersecting under your skin rather than polishing. And Clifton comments, this is quite interesting. For not only is the whiteness of our skin likened unto transparency with the red blood tone showing through like rubies, but the blue veins of the Caucasian appear as sapphire. This is the same flesh tone that a good photographer likes to attain in his finished pictures and goes to great pains to achieve in perfection. This is amazing, for only the sunlight has a perfect balance between magenta, or red, and blue. Therefore, all non-whites are totally out of balance with nature. And Clifton takes a digression, which we will omit here, where he explains that whites alone are optimized to process vitamin D from sunlight hitting their skin. And he continues, for a few lines anyway, back to Adam Clark. Milk will most certainly well apply to the whiteness of the skin, the beautiful ruby to the ruddiness of the flesh, and the sapphire in its clear transcendent, trans, I'm sorry, transcendent purple to the veins in a fine complexion. And after repeating some of the things that Benjamin Franklin had said, which he had cited in his earlier article, because now we're in part two. With a few new comments, Clifton continues. At 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 12, David is described thusly. And he sent and brought him, meaning David, and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, and withal of a beautiful countenance, and goodly to look. And Yahweh said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he and from Adam Clark's six-volume commentary on volume 2, page 258, we read about this passage. He was ruddy, and Clark says, I believe the word here means red-haired, and that's not true, but we'll get on with that. He had golden locks. Now, the, um, the gold of antiquity had a higher copper content than modern gold, so it had a slightly more reddish hue. Hair of this kind is ever associated with a delicate skin and florid or flowery complexion. The King James Version center column has fair of eyes. Now, comparing the use of the same term in chapter 17, which Clifton is about to repeat, the King James Version notes are absurd in that regard where they have fair of eyes, where it says that David was of a fair countenance. Clifton says, 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 42 further states, And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy and of a fair countenance. Strong's Hebrew and County Dictionary has the following, our numbers 132, the word for ruddy, I believe Clifton probably meant 122 there, and 
122. From 119. Reddish of the hair or the complexion. And the King James has it as red or ruddy. And number 3303. Yafa. From number 3302. Beautiful, literally or figuratively. And the King James in various, in various places, the King James translates that word yafa as beautiful, beauty, comely, fair, fairest, goodly, pleasant, or well. And Clifton says that the brown driver Briggs, Jesenius Hebrew and English lexicon, that's brown driver and Briggs added their names to Jesenius, Adds to number 3303, Yafa, an adjective, fair, beautiful, as an attribute of women, less often of boys or a young man, of Joseph, of Jerusalem, of a singer, of a cedar, of everything in its time, various things that the word as an adjective was applied to. And then they add, with beauty of eyes. And here we must note, that even in the Brown Driver and Briggs lexicon, which Clifton has just cited, the definition for the word fair seems to be corrupted, as if the commentators are conducting an agenda to change the meaning of the term. We had remarked where we had seen that the King James Version center column reference Clifton referred to has fair of eyes for the word fair in 1 Samuel chapter 16. But that doesn't really fit the use of the term in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 42. But here, Brown, Driver, and Briggs added fair of eyes for their definition of the word, where it was used to describe Joseph. And ostensibly, they are referring to Genesis chapter 39, verse 6. There, the Hebrew word for fair appears twice in the same sentence. And the King James Version translators wrote, Joseph was a goodly person and well-favored. In, in that clause, the word Yafeh, number 3303, is translated as well in the phrase well-favored. But it also appears with another word, 8389, toar, which means form or outline. And the King James translators rendered the two words, Yafet Tawar, as goodly. It should be noted that that phrase should have been translated, Joseph was of good form and well-favored, both good and well being from Yafet 3303, which is often itself translated as fair, where it is used by itself describing people. Yafeh means fair. And here we must ask, why Yafeh, Strong's number 3303, means fair? Because this word was used to describe Sarah. This word was used to describe several other people throughout Scripture. So why does it mean fair? And what is meant by fair? Strong's primary definition of 3303 is beautiful. 
He explained that it is derived from Strong's 3302, a word which is spelled the same exact way in the original Hebrew, and which Strong says is a primitive root meaning properly to be bright, and also by implication to be beautiful. So, according to the lexicons, something which is bright is beautiful. And that is another term which can only accurately describe white people of good countenance. So, wherever you encounter that word fair, used of people in scripture, it refers to someone who appears bright. Not to niggers. It can't refer to a nigger. Niggers are not bright by any stretch of the imagination. And they didn't have cocoa butter back in ancient Palestine. Not that I ever read anyway. And cocoa butter doesn't really make them look bright. And the word ivory does not refer to ebony. Yafeh is fair because it describes something bright. Returning to Clifton, from the three-volume, the popular and critical, in, the popular and critical Bible Encyclopedia and Scriptural Dictionary, Volume Three, page fourteen ninety-three, we read concerning the word ruddy. From Adam to be read applied to David in 1 Samuel chapters 16 and 17, it is a term used to denote either the color of David's hair or of his complexion. Now this is a very good argument and it makes perfect sense. It does not refer to his hair. It seems rather to refer to the complexion. This view is confirmed by the application of kindred words as... Her Nazarites were purer than snow, they were whiter than milk, they were more ruddy than rubies in Lamentations chapter 4. And my beloved is white and ruddy in Canticles or the Song of Solomon chapter 5, who is immediately described as black-haired, raven-haired in chapter 5 verse 11. You will notice that this source uses the expression, the application of kindred words, which is a very important observation. To make it more complete, and these are Clifton's words, I would say both kindred words and kindred phrases. In the case of kindred words, the second word would reinforce the meaning of the first word. Likewise, in the case of kindred phrases, the second phrase would reinforce the meaning of the first phrase. Therefore, the true meaning of the word or phrase is locked solidly in place, and the meaning cannot be challenged. It would be foolhardy to try, or absolutely dishonest. What Clifton means here is that where it says purer than snow, whiter than milk, and more ruddy than rubies, we have a Hebrew parallelism where each of these three phrases clarifies what is described by each of the others, all of them describing the same people in different ways for that very reason. And Clifton continues, 
I will now cite the 14-volume Webster's Unified Encyclopedia and Dictionary on the word ruddy in volume 11. Ruddy, an adjective. Approaching redness, tinged with red, florid as a ruddy countenance. Next, Clifton says, <coughs> excuse me, I will cite a dictionary which I recommend that every serious Bible student should have, as it contains all of the Indo-European root words. I also recommend, along with this, a King James Version with a good center reference, like that found in the Zondervan Classic Reference Bible, mainly because the King James words are keyed to the Strong's numbers. Third, I also recommend the Strong's Concordance with the Hebrew and Greek dictionaries, and the original is getting harder and harder to find. The English dictionary which I advise is the American Heritage Dictionary of the English Language, published by Houghton Mifflin Company. And he says, quoting Ruddy, their definition of Ruddy from that dictionary, Adjective, having a healthy reddish color, reddish or rosy, and slang, confounded or darned. At this point, Clifton supplies the derivatives of all of the Indo-European words supposed to have come from, an, from a common original root for the word ruddy. We will omit the list here and a bit more. And at this word, at, I'm sorry, at this point in his paper, Clifton proceeds by citing Song of Solomon chapter 4 verse, I'm sorry, by citing Song of Solomon chapter 4 verse 7, where it says, Thou art all fair, my love. There is no spot in thee. And doing this, Clifton continues with the long discussion of spots and blemishes, as they are seen in the scripture, and the consequence of having such spots and blemishes. And then he gives a discussion of the infamous Mongolian Scott, I'm sorry, Mongolian spot found on many non-white and mixed-race babies. Then in part three of his paper, it's biblical to be Caucasian. Clifton discussed Acts chapter 17 verse 26 at great length, particularly in relation to the one blood statement found in the King James Version, but not in the oldest Greek manuscripts where the word blood does not exist. And he used that as an occasion to discuss blood types and other differences of blood and genetics among the races. While these topics may certainly be worth expounding upon at some point in the future, they are beyond the scope of our purpose here this evening, and we will leave them for another time. Later, in part four of his paper, Clifton returns to the Song of Solomon, and we will skip his brief introduction, picking up from where he once again quotes from chapter five of the song. My beloved is white and ruddy, the chiefest among ten thousand. His head is as the most fine gold. His locks are bushy, which we have already explained from the Septuagint should have been translated flowing, and black as a raven. His eyes are as the eyes of doves by the rivers of waters, washed with milk and fitly set. 
His cheeks are as a bed of spices, as sweet flowers. His lips like lilies, dropping sweet-smelling myrrh. And he evidently didn't have lips like bicycle tires, as your typical Negro would have. I'm sorry, I can't help myself. His hands are as gold rings set with the beryl. His belly is as bright ivory overlaid with sapphires, white and blue. His legs are as pillars of marble set upon sockets of fine gold, a man with sun-tanned calves and ankles. His countenance is as Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, yeah, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. And Clifton says, the word in this passage we are interested in is marble. Strong's Hebrew Dictionary number 8336, the word sheish, or sheshi. And it means bleached stuff, according to Strong, i.e. white linen, or by analogy, marble. And the King James Version renders it in various places as fine linen, or marble, or even silk in certain contexts. And it's from 7893, Sheish which Strong says is from an unused root meaning to bleach or to whiten. White, i.e. marble. And the King James renders that word as marble and refers one to 8336, the first word, the word which appears here. And Clifton says what is interesting about Strong's 8336 is that Strong's 8337 is derived from the same Hebrew word as 8336, and 8337 generally means the numeral number 6 or 60 in several languages, probably Hebrew, Aramaic. Just and, and 6, interestingly, is in Hebrew or in biblical numerology as it's generally understood, 6 is the number of man. Jesenius, in his Hebrew County Lexicon to the Old Testament, has this to say in part concerning 8336. In the masculine, something white, white marble, as it's used in Esther, chapter 1, and Canticles, or here in the Song of Solomon, chapter 5. Bissus, so called from its whiteness, both that of the Egyptians, and of the Hebrew priests, and these citing Genesis chapter 41, this is the Jesenius Hebrew County lexicon to the Old Testament, where he's referring to these Egyptians as being described from this, by this word, which means whiteness, from Genesis chapter 41, Proverbs chapter 31, and of the Hebrew priests from Exodus chapters 26, two places in 27, and chapter 28. And Clifton notes, or Jesenius notes, I'm sorry, this word, as we have seen, may be referred to a Hebrew origin. 
It nearly approximates, however, to the Egyptian, and perhaps the Hebrew may have so imitated the Egyptian word that it might also seem to have an etymology in their own language. In the Brown Driver Briggs Jesenius Hebrew and English Lexicon, on Strong's number 7893, which is the related word, it has noun, masculine, alabaster. And they wonder if it's a foreign word. And Clifton goes on to say that inasmuch as alabaster is a form of marble, let's ascertain what marble is all about. We will do that by referring to the 1951 World Scope Encyclopedia, Volume 7, which says marble, a name applied to any limestone that is sufficiently hard to take a fine polish, the species of which are of value for building or ornament are composed mainly of calcium carbonate or of calcium and magnesium carbonate. The colors of marble range from pure white through all shades of gray to black, violet, red, drab, yellow, pink, and green are likewise abundant. Gray and black colors are due to carbonaceous matter and the others mainly due to iron oxide. Excellent marbles are secured from some of the fossiliferous limestones, such as are taken from the carboniferous formations, and these are colored various shades of gray. Good marbles are also secured from non-fossiliferous crystalline formations, these consisting mainly of sedimentary calcareous strata which are altered by metamorphism. The purest classes of marble are used for statues and monuments, while others are of value for building material. A fine grade of marble of various colors is obtained from the Grand Canyon of Colorado, but there are quarries of more or less value in many portions of Canada and the United States. The marble used by ancient artists in sculpturing came largely from the Parian and Carrara quarries located respectively in the island of Paros and in Italy, which still produces species of very excellent quality. Both the Carrara and the Parian marbles are white. The Numidian marble of Africa is either white or yellow, but usually white with yellowish markings. Extensive marble quarries are worked at Glen Falls, New York, in Vermont, etc., etc., and in the same place in Volume 1. Alabaster, the name applied to a very fine variety of gypsum, or hydrated sulfate of lime. The harder variety is used in the manufacture of statuettes, clock frames, and other ornamental commodities, while the softer serves in the manufacture of an inferior cement known in the markets as plaster of Paris, which we all know is <laughs> very white. Deposits of white granular gypsum are found in various portions of the United States, which occurs in pure and sound blocks, and from which the merchantable article is manufactured. However, the largest quarries are in Tuscany, Italy, where a fine grade is obtained. There are also deposits in Egypt and various regions of Asia.
And from the American Heritage Dictionary, with Indo-European roots, we read in part concerning the definition of alabaster. A dense, translucent, white or tinted, fine-grained gypsum. A variety of hard calcite, translucent and sometimes banded. This definition is very important. As the only white Caucasian, as only, as Clifton says, as only the white Caucasian fits this description. So not only are his legs as pillars of marble, but they are translucent, allowing the red blood tone as well as the blue of the veins to radiate through. And his belly is as bright ivory. The Hebrew refers to the skin area of his entire body. From the sixth volume, Zondervan Pictorial Encyclopedia of the Bible, volume 4, pages 71 and 72, we read in part on marble. Marble is limestone, calcium carbonate, or dolomite, which is calcium magnesium carbonate, which has been recrystallized under metamorphic conditions, either by heat and pressure in the Earth's crust, particularly in mountain belts. However, the term marble often is applied to some special types of non-metamorphic limestone. The same is capable of high polish and was much used in architecture, as in the building of Solomon's Temple, with pillars of marble being used as a representation of strength. And here Clifton closes the main theme of his paper by remarking upon the described whiteness and translucence of Solomon's skin as it is described in the Song of Songs. We can examine the definition of the word Adam and the definitions and the use of the words for fair and ruddy in the several places that they appear in scripture and we can deduce we can deduce that the ancient Israelites were white people we can also look at the ancient history and all of the Genesis 10 nations and it is quite clear to even a novice of history that at least most of them were white while those who do deeper research must be convinced that all of them were originally white and of course they all had to be. But the Song of Songs, or the Song of Solomon as it is more frequently called, is a smoking gun. Any honest examination of its language proves beyond all reasonable doubt that King Solomon and his unnamed lover, his unnamed wife, who was also referred to as a kinsman, as they referred to one another as kinsmen, meaning that they were of, were of the same nation. An honest examination of this language proves beyond all reasonable doubt that they were indeed white. White with blue, gray, or perhaps green eyes, and ivory-colored, ivory -colored, translucent, and ruddy-featured skin that you could see the veins right through. This book also portrays the love which Yahweh himself has for his people Israel, 
and therefore it exhibits his ideal, which is the ideal for the Adamic man of his creation. And by no means can any of these things describe Negroes, Arabs, Chinamen, Latin American Indians, or Jews. That will conclude our discussion on the Song of Solomon. Tomorrow night, Arthur Lee gets born again, but not in the way you may think upon hearing that title. Next Friday, we will probably commence a presentation of Paul's epistle to the Hebrews. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And good night. White power, one, two, three, four! I thought I was my country Going down the drain We are all about now We are all to blame When I think I took over We just let them come Once we had an empire And now we've got a slow White power, Yeah.